1 Samuel chapter 21, starting at verse 1. David went to Nob, to Amalek the priest. Amalek trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Amalek the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me in a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. We're now going to go to verse 6. So the priests gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day. Detained before the Lord, he was Doag the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. We are now going to move to chapter 22, um, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Hibiot, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all of your fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me, as he does today. But Doak the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Amalek, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Amalek inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Amalek, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Amalek answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Amalek, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doag, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put on put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, dogs, donkeys, and sheep. 
But one son of Amalek, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doeg the Edumite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. This is the word of the Lord. And we're going to read Psalm 52 together. Um, The words, I think, will be on the screen, but if you'd like to follow it, In the Bible, it's page 574. When you get there, I will read the even verses. You read the odd verses. So on the screen, I'll read the ones not in bold. You read the ones in bold. For the director of music, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Well, please do keep Psalm 52 open in front of you. If you haven't got it, it's page 574. And I'm just going to read a few words. Don't turn to these words. Familiar to many of you, I think. Some words of the Lord Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Happy. Here are the ones who are to be envied if any. That's what Jesus is saying. They're living the good life, the blessed life, the happy life, to which we have to say, honestly, it doesn't look like it, does it? Because we live in a world in which the poor in spirit, the in 
innocent, often aren't blessed, they suffer terribly. About three or four weeks ago was the anniversary, 30th anniversary of the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And if you were in Britain at the time, you will know about the Stephen Lawrence, Lawrence murder. Innocent young man, 18 years old, standing by a bus stop, waiting for a bus. That's all he was doing. And some young men ran across the road and they murdered him. It was a racially motivated, unprovoked attack. Within hours, the police were given the names, a list of names of people who had done it. Everyone in the local community knew it. But they didn't act quickly enough, and subsequently, it's become pretty clear that there was some degree of corruption, at least involved in one of those involved in the investigation. So when finally there was an arrest, there wasn't enough evidence, and the Crown Prosecution Service said, we can't do anything with this. Then the family took a private prosecution, but because of the bungling in the police operation right at the beginning, they couldn't prove what everyone really knew. That whole episode took four years. Four years before an inquest could finally take place, and the family had to come at last to hear the coroner working out what had happened. And the coroner insisted that those individuals who were the chief suspects would attend. They came because they were ordered to. But they giggled and laughed throughout. When they had to stand and questions were asked, they refused to open their mouths. And at the end, they left. Some of you might have seen the, the footage, the horrific scenes as they left. They were strutting, spitting at those who'd come to watch them. They'd got away, it seemed, literally with murder. And that is the world we live in. And so often the innocent are not blessed. They're killed. And the wicked are not punished. They get away with murder. And I take it, we're not talking about things that are just out there, although seeing it happen out there can be very painful indeed. But many of you can think of times, perhaps in your life, when you yourself have been innocent and you've suffered, or those you love very much have been innocent and you've suffered, not necessarily despite your innocence, but sometimes because of your innocence, your purity, your righteousness. Blessed. Who are the blessed ones? Well, in many ways, this is the theme of the Psalter, the book of Psalms that we're looking at in the next few weeks, because we saw two weeks ago that Psalms 1 and 2 have been deliberately placed right at the front of the Psalter to give us, as it were, the spectacles through which we read all the other Psalms right up to Psalm 150, and to introduce us to come some of the, the, the plot and the themes that recur throughout. And there's a kind of verbal brackets around those two psalms. Begins with the first word, blessed, Psalm 1. Here are the blessed ones. It ends, the last verse of Psalm 2, blessed. Who are the blessed ones? The blessed ones, Psalm 1, are those who delight in God's law, God's word. The blessed ones... Psalm 2 are those who submit to God's Son, God's King. And you might think, well, hang on, 
Isn't the Psalms inviting us to enter unreality? Because it isn't always like that. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is that we are entering absolutely the real world. Because having made those headlines in Psalm 1 and 2, blessed are those who delight in God's word, blessed are those who submit to God's son, God's king, the very next psalm, Psalm 3, is a cry from that king. Lord, how many are my foes? We saw last week a lament of David Psalm 13, where he's reflecting on the reality that although he's the Lord's king, he's attacked. He's not acknowledged. He's on the run. He cries out, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Well, we're still in the first couple of books of uh, Psalms. You might Remember that the 150 Psalms are divided into five different books. And there's some degree of progression, a different sort of chronology, some degree at least, on the way through. And these first two books of the Psalms were in the period of David's life when David has been appointed as God's king. He's received the anointing oil from the prophet Samuel. But for much of Psalm 1 and 2, books 1 and 2, he's on the run. He's rejected. If there's any development between book 1 and book 2, it, it, it seems, if anything, that the storm gathers even more. Things are getting even worse. And we get a few more of the headings which give us quite precise instructions as to what's happening during this psalm. And as Josh read it earlier, Psalm 52, when Doeg, the Edomite, had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. And if ever there's a wicked man who seems to prosper, it is Doeg. His name is entirely appropriate, isn't it? Doeg. Dirty Doeg. It's a really nasty piece of work. And for his evil and his wickedness, he seems to be prospering, and here is David reflecting on the situation. But the mood is rather different from Psalm 13. Last week, we saw a progression, and it's quite a familiar progression in these psalms of lament, as they're called. Begin with a groan. How long, O oh Lord? Why, Lord? And we saw it was a wonderful encouragement for us not to feel we've got to hide how we feel with God. Not least when we're frustrated and think, God, what are you doing? Why don't you do something? It's not even a prayer at the beginning of the psalm, but it moves from the groan to the prayer. And he asks God to intervene and sort things out. And then... The prayer of the psalm of lament ends with a resolve. At this stage, as far as we can tell last week, the situation hasn't been sorted out. But David has a new perspective and he resolves, I'm going to trust in the Lord, I'm going to praise the Lord. This psalm, Psalm 52, seems to be a rather different mood. It's as if it's at the end of the progression. No doubt there was a groan behind it. God, why aren't you dealing with Doeg? A prayer, Lord, won't you to deal with Doeg? But here is a mood of settled dependence on the Lord. It's a resolve to keep praising him, knowing that things will be sorted. Well, by the way, there are more laments to come, so don't think this is a one-way street, that uh, immature Christians, they're groaning, and then they start praying, and then we get to the stage of resolution and dependence, Psalm 52 land. 
Now, it isn't long before we get, once again, Psalm 54, Save me, O God! He's crying out. This is a constant progression in the Christian life. But here is David reflecting on the wicked Doeg, on injustice in the world, and he's trusting. He doesn't make light of the wickedness of what Doeg is doing. Verse 1, why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Look at those suspects in the Stephen Lawrence murder going to the inquest, chests out, strutting, boasting, as it were, in evil. That's what Doeg was doing. And what a wicked, wicked man he was. Verse 2, you who practice deceit. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. Interesting that he zooms in on the use of the tongue. Sometimes we say it's just words, just words. But words have enormous power to build up or to cast down. And if you think about it, it was the words of Doeg that did the damage. David had been Saul's favorite strumming away, playing beautiful music that calmed Saul. But then Saul got jealous, and that was bad news for David. And so he runs away for his life. He's in such haste, he hasn't got time to get any provisions, no time to get a weapon. And he passes by Ahimelech, the priest. And he goes to him, clearly in a rush. And Ahimelech's nervous, because he doesn't want to be supporting someone who's on the run from King Saul. That would be a very dangerous thing to do. But David reassures him. He lies. He says, oh, I'm on a special mission from Saul. And reassured, Ahimelech gives him some of the special bread that was preserved before the Lord. And then gave him Goliath's sword that had been preserved as a memory of a great victory that the Lord had won through David. And so on David goes. Well, Saul, meanwhile, is surrounded by soldiers. He looks very secure indeed, but like a lot of powerful people, he's paranoid. And he says to his allies around him, none of you care for me. I can't trust any of you. And Doeg sees an opportunity. Oh, King Saul, (laughs) some information that I thought might be useful for you. I was with Ahimelech. And I noticed David come by. And Ahimelech helped him. He gave him some food and a weapon. Now all that was strictly speaking true. But of course, Derek doesn't give the whole truth. He says it in such a way that makes Ahimelech look like a traitor. He doesn't say that David tricked him into saying that he was on a mission from Saul. That information was hidden. Saul is furious. He summons Ahimelech and all the priests to come with their whole families. And then he says to one of the guards, kill them, kill a lot of them. Now normally, these soldiers would do exactly what the king did, but this was such a horrific crime that even though they could get into trouble, they said, we cannot do it. But no qualms from Doeg. Here's an opportunity to go even higher in the king's estimation. So he massacres all the priests and their families, including the children. How could he do it? 
When you think of horrific things that have been done, questions are asked sometimes. You know, what caused someone to do that? Was it their upbringing? Some terrible thing that happened? Well, they might be influences. But ultimately, why do we do bad things? We do them because we want to at that moment. And so from the tongue, David focuses on, in on the heart. Verse 3, why did Doreg speak like this, which caused such harm? You love evil rather than good. Falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word. You deceitful tongue. Here's a man consumed with a desire to please himself. And he relished the scheming that was involved. Any opportunity to bring others down and exalt himself. He loved it. And that love for evil, that self-obsession, caused terrible harm. But he seems to get away with it. Already, he was the king's chief shepherd. That was a very significant role in an agrarian society. But now, no doubt, he's deeply trusted after he's done this wicked thing. He's strutting around saying, look at me. He's got away with murder. What's David's response? I think we'll find it a great help to us when we look at wickedness in the world. When we hear about, as we've just prayed earlier, Christians in northern India under increasing pressure. Imprisoned, pastors just taken away, brutally murdered, rights removed in many parts of the world. How do we cope with that kind of thing? And their own lives, how do we cope when we're ill-treated or sometimes harder, those we love are wickedly treated and those who cause the offense get away with it. Three things we can learn from David. Here is David in a more settled state. Bear in mind, they would have been groaning and praying behind all this. But stage one, he looks to God's judgment. Notice how the psalm begins, verse one. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? It's irony. Oh, you're the big man, are you? Strutting around. Why do you boast? It's similar to the why that we saw in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Why do they do it? It's not a question demanding an answer. It's a statement. Making a point. Do they really think they'll get away with it? Derek may look secure in the present, but the righteous look to the future. Verse 5, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. Mark Mendel is a friend of a number of us here and a former overseas partner of ours in Uganda a number of years ago. And when the Mendel family were in Uganda, they got to know a man who was uh, from Zaire, he'd suddenly had to flee Zaire, came with his family. But a number of other family members had been brutally murdered by Machete. And Mark was talking to this man. He was a, he was a deep Christian, but had been traumatized. He said, how do, how do you cope? 
And he said, Mark, I could never trust God if it wasn't for judgment. For I know there won't be and can't be justice for us in this world. But this is key for making the Christian message good news for me. God will judge. And sometimes in the Psalms, you, you read times which seem to almost delight in, in judgment. And there's a discomfort in that, perhaps. But this is the motivation of the thinking behind it. That often, wickedness is not dealt with. But it's good news that one day, God will judge. Surely, God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He'll snatch you up and pluck you up from your tent. You won't even be safe. Inside your tent, on your bed, he will uproot you from the land of the living. You look so strong, like some magnificent oak tree that's been there for centuries. Doesn't look so strong after the storm has gone and that mighty tree is felled. He looks to God's judgment. Verse 6, the righteous will see and fear and they will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. We're looking at the heart again. And here's a man who treasured evil and who trusted not in God, but in his wealth and in his power, his ability to sort things out. It looked as if he got away with it. But on judgment day, the righteous will see and fear, and they will laugh. Don't think of vindictive laughter. Again, Psalm 2 is referenced. Psalm 1 and 2 come again and again, the themes of these two psalms throughout the Psalter. And Psalm 2, do you remember? The one enthroned in heaven laughs at the proud opposition of the nations who dismiss God's king. Because one day God's king will crush his enemies. Justice will come. But this laughter speaks of the arrogant stupidity of the wicked. It's, again, the why. why. Do you really think you'll get away with it? The one who looks so strong, well, look at them now. Felled. The righteous, though, aren't just laughing. They'll see and Fear. Thomas Jefferson, one of the architects of the American Constitution, once said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. And the thought of judgment to come should be a comfort in the midst of the injustices of the world, but also should make us tremble. So who can stand the day of his appearing? We look at Doeg and we think, there is a very wicked man, but look at my own heart. And have there not been many times when I've loved what is wrong and evil? That's why I've done wicked, evil things, because I've, I've loved those things. I've loved myself more than I loved God. I've trusted, maybe, in possessions, in my position, rather than in the living God. All sin flows from the heart, what we trust, what we treasure, flows into either worship of God or sin. And the seeds of Doeg's evil and wickedness, they're in me and they've often borne fruit in my life. 
And surely David himself knew that he was not entirely innocent of Doeg-like behavior. So what gave Doeg something to work on was the fact that Ahimelech had been tricked. Why? Because David told a lie. He was deceitful. And why did he tell a lie? Because he hadn't trusted God. God had promised that one day David would be the king. It was a promise. But here he's worried that he's going to be snuffed out of the first hurdle. So rather than trusting in God, he tricks Ahimelech into helping him. As a result, Ahimelech is very, very vulnerable and gives an opportunity for Doeg to strike with the vicious dagger of his tongue. So how could David take any comfort when he looked at the future judgment of God for Doeg? What about God's judgment on him? And how can we take any comfort when we think God is going to judge the wicked? Well, does that not include you and me? Well, David's confidence as he looked to the future was not because he thought he was innocent. Next week, you'll look at Psalm 51. A psalm of penitence after David has been convicted of the sin of adultery and murder. Have mercy on me. Unlike Doeg, who loved evil, David came to lament his own wickedness. He confesses it. He turns from it. And he trusts in God and his grace. So how do you cope with a world in which the righteous don't seem to be blessed and the wicked seem as if they are? Look to God's judgment. But then second, trust in God's love. Verse 8, But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Here's the contrast with the uprooted tree, Doeg who looks so strong but will one day come crashing down. But I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. It's an echo of Psalm 1. Do you remember that the righteous who delight in the law of the Lord, like a tree, we're told, planted by streams of water. Not flourishing because of his own possessions, his power, his abilities. Flourishing because he's in the house of God. He's related to him, belonging to him, close to him. And there's no safer place to be than close to God. True vitality, true fruitfulness flows from connection to him, the source of all the life. Whereas disconnection from God in the end leads to people, end of verse 5, being uprooted from the land of the living. Now David's very different. End of verse 8, I trust not in wealth, like Doeg, not in growing strong by destroying others. No, I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. It's the great refrain of the Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I trust in God's unfailing love. God's commitment to his promises, guaranteed. Promises that we saw in Psalm 2 are focused in on a king of the line of David who will be not only David's son, he'll be the son of God. You see, David knows that ultimately Doeg and his like cannot prevail. 
because God has promised that one day a king will be raised up, God's divine, just king. And one day he will crush all that is evil. And one day that king came. Whereas David, well, he sought to be righteous, but he often failed. This king was a perfect king, the perfect king. And Jesus, through his earthly life, faced many manifestations of Doeg-like evil in spiritual form, Satan and his demonic foes. In human form, those out to destroy him, twisting his words, getting out the verbal razors, telling blatant lies, ensuring his arrest, ensuring his execution. And through it all, the Lord Jesus Oh, there's groaning. We saw that last week. Why? Why? But a resolve, a settled confidence, because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The loving God who will keep his promises. And as we look back on the death of Jesus, we have enormous reason to trust in the unfailing love of God, because it's not just declared in a book demonstrated by the cross. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through faith in Christ, we're joined to God like a branch to the trunk. The Holy Spirit has entered in our life, bringing a vitality and a confidence that nothing can separate us from his love. How do we cope with injustice and wickedness, triumphing? Look to God's judgment, trust in God's love, and then praise God's salvation. Verse 9, for what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. There's a wonderful combination of the Psalms, very realistic. Real life is here. Confusion, anguish, distress, depression, sometimes despair or something's very, very close to despair. And yet at the same time, these songs are infused with praise. And the whole trajectory of the book is leading us from lament to praise. That's the trajectory of these lament psalms. It's a tradition of every book. We've seen that every book of the Psalms, all five books, ends with an encouragement to us to praise the Lord. And the last five Psalms of the whole Psalter begin and end with the same word, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. It's a great hallelujah chorus. Praise the Lord. For what you've done, I will always praise you. Tim and Rachel Green are overseas partners of us. Josh, their son, is a member of the 630 congregation. And uh, recently they sent out their 100th prayer letter. They've been overseas partners for over 35 years. And the 100th letter came, and it was just a chance for them to look back. And uh, they reflected that during those 100 prayer letters, they've spoken of times when they were held up at gunpoint. The children's school was attacked by terrorists. 
they were forced to leave Pakistan, which was their home, which they much loved, very quickly. Rachel's had surgery for breast cancer. But then they said, but the, they've been hard times, they've been challenging times, but what we praise God for is infinitely more, as they've seen what the Lord has done, the steadfast love of the Lord. We can look back, God willing, in our own lives, those of us who know and love Jesus, and think, yeah, he's, he's been with us, even through the hard times, but we can certainly look back and look at the cross and know Jesus died for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, how can he not graciously give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so we praise God looking back, and that infuses us with praise as we look forward. There's a confidence, verse 9, I will hope in your name, for your name is good. God has made promises. He backs them up with his good name. I could make a promise to you. I could sign a letter. I promise to give you five million pounds. Signed, Vaughan Roberts. Worth nothing. I don't, I don't have five million pounds. My name can't guarantee that vacuous promise. It's an empty promise. But when God makes a promise and he attaches his name to it, that is guaranteed. He's already sent his son. And here is a pledge signed in the blood of of Christ. It's guaranteed. So even when we look at a world in which terrible injustice prevails, well, there should be and can be a song in our heart because as we look to the future we can be sure one day justice will come. And God is loving, unfailingly loving. We can sing his praise. Two weeks ago, we looked, some of us, at the, the clip from that Casablanca film. And the occupying forces, the Nazis, singing a gloating song. But then another song begins to play, the Marseillaise, the French national anthem. And one by one, others began to stand. And at first, it's a defiant song. And then the tear begins to drip. And the joy begins to thrill the heart. That's the effect of the book of Psalms. It's not masking the reality. Psalms 1 and 2 both make it clear that there's conflict around. There's resistance to God and to his king, Jesus, and to what is good. And sometimes the wicked seem to prevail, and we can see them strutting around, boasting of evil. They seem to be winning. Their song fills the world. But can you hear the king singing? A song that's realistic, full of confidence because our God reigns it's good and loving and Christ has died and Christ will come again and the great invitation of the whole book of Psalms is to join the king's choir to join the song we don't sing it alone we sing it in the presence verse 9 of God's faithful people every time we come to church God willing we'll hear the song again through the preaching and as we sing we're encouraged to receive it into our hearts once more so that we go out into this world where often we hear the gloating songs. We keep singing the King's song with joy in our hearts and hope for the future. Let's pray.
in the quietness, what I'm actually going to do is read a very brief poem. It's a sonnet, 14 lines, written by a poet called Malcolm Geit. And he's written a sonnet reflecting Christianly on each of the 150 psalms. Just listen to this. If you want to follow it, you can see it on the screen, but I'm going to read it. Here is his sonnet on Psalm 52, which I think is a very fitting, reflective way to end. Of all your loving God has done for you, of all his many mercies on your soul, surely the greatest was his planting you like a green olive tree secure and whole to grow within his holy house forever be rooted once again in the rich soil of his deep love and know that none can sever no power on earth can ever separate you from the steadfast love of Christ your savior so let the tyrants boast their desperate endeavors to maintain their godless power will come to nothing soon. Evaporate like morning mist before the sun. The hour is coming and has come. Their time is up. But you will flourish in God's house forever. <laughs>